Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations and Genomic Medicine Research Podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research. And we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Today, we are speaking with Stephanie Crowley, PhD. Stephanie is a clinical genomics scientist at Invite Laboratories. I can just give you like a short um, little overview of my background and then like how I got to where I am today and um, what I do every day. And, you know, feel free to like interrupt me at any So I work at a genetic testing company and I do variant analysis and gene analysis. And I feel like the way I got here was like pretty circuitous. Like I feel like at every step of the way I was just trying to figure out like what I should do next. But um, I'm really like happy with where I got. But like originally I started out like I was like convinced that I wanted to be a veterinarian and so I went to college for like um, veterinary medicine um, but at some point I started working in a research lab and I was doing plant genetics and plant genomics and I just fell in love with that because I liked you know the ability to like ask questions and like try to come up with experiments and like um, figure out the answers to my questions so like I decided okay I want to do a PhD I want to do research Um, so where should I go from now and so I felt like plant genetics was a little bit too far away from like impacting um, human health so for my graduate studies, then I started a PhD program um, in a lab that does fruit fly genetics. And I felt like this was a little bit closer to humans, but also like the questions I was asking could potentially be more relevant to human health because I was working with proteins that are involved with DNA repair. Um, So like the proteins that Uh, you know, maintain our genome integrity and like hopefully in that way prevent cancer. So I really liked that. Um, But for my next step, since I still felt like I was pretty far removed from um, human health, then I decided to do a postdoc in a clinical genomics lab. And so I had the opportunity to work with some of the individuals that you've probably been um, talking to and hearing about like Lana and um, Jenny and Cindy. And so, you know, I got to uh, 
work on a whole um, bunch of different projects um, in a research setting. And I was doing um, variant interpretation and gene interpretation. And I, w I thought it was really exciting because I felt like this, these uh, projects were, uh, they could potentially directly impact, um, uh, you know, diagnostic testing and preventative testing in the future. So I really liked that. And I got to work with, you know, a, people from all different backgrounds. So um, medical geneticists and genetic counselors and other um, like postdoctoral researchers. So at that point, I guess I kind of felt like I was at a crossroads. You know, I could continue doing research um, and asking these types of questions or I could pursue um, some more education and um, potentially do uh, like a laboratory genetic and genomics fellowship um, to become a lab director um, or else I could use the same types of like skills I was currently doing and like go to a biotech company and like just jump right in like trying to help um, patients understand uh, what was going on um, genetically. So I opted for kind of that route. And so um, that brought me to Invitae, um, which is a medical genetics um, testing company. And they're located in California. So I work remotely, um, which is really nice. And I've been there for about two years. And um, my job is to do variant analysis. Um, so the way Invitae is set up is that they do diagnostic testing um, and they also do preventive testing and reproductive testing. So I work in the um, diagnostic testing um, section and then there are um, different uh, fields um, of diagnostic testing, like there's the hereditary cancer testing or cardiology, pediatrics, um, and so on. So I'm part of the hereditary cancer team. And um, so basically um, patients who are undergoing hereditary cancer testing um, like their clinicians will order a test and then they'll have a sample sent to the lab in San Francisco and the sample will be processed and the DNA will be extracted. And um, then uh, the genes that are relevant for hereditary cancer are sequenced. And then there's like a whole bunch of bioinformatics steps, which are kind of like magic to me, but it involves like, um, prioritizing uh, variants that are found like in the patient uh, between the patient sample and um, like a reference sample. So where I come in is like kind of at the end of that process, which is all of these um, variants, the prioritized variants are um, presented to me and I have to determine like what's the significance of this variant. 
So I basically um, tried to look at two main types of information. So the clinical information and then experimental information. So the clinical information is, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking through medic published um, medical literature, through patient databases, um, and I'm really asking, trying to ask, like, has this variant been seen before? Do patients have the same phenotype as my patient? Um, and then I, I'm also interested in the experimental evidence. Um, so, like, has this variant been tested experimentally? Like, is it located in, like, an important protein domain that could, like, um, you know, interfere with the normal uh, function of the protein? So I kind of spend my day like in front of the computer reading and trying to like synthesize all of this information um, into like a re really short summary and that gets put in um, the testing report. And the testing report ultimately goes to the clinician and the patient. Um, but I do this like I do it collaboration with a bunch of other people. So, you know, there are genetic counselors who really specialize in interpreting, um, or sorry, in writing the um, reports. And then the lab directors are the ones who are responsible for, you know, signing the reports and in case they need to um, reach out to the clinicians, um, then, you know, they'll do that. You know, I, I really like this job. I think that it kind of fulfills that um, uh, desire that I had um, for, you know, feeling like I could ask a question and like uh, do research and investigation to come up with an answer. But I also feel like this job is rewarding as well because you know, hopefully this is um, contributing to like the patient's uh, medical care in some way as well. So either like directing like what types of therapies could be utilized now or maybe like indicating what types of screening could be done like in the future. Um, so those are my main responsibilities. Um, but I am happy to take any questions you might have. Um, I was curious about one thing. I know you mentioned that you worked in a, a plant genetic lab, right? Yep. So I was wondering if you considered, because I, I did listen to some um, presentations, and I think they were studying plants and the chemicals and um, ways that could be used to treat, like so, you know, medical applications. I was wondering if you maybe considered that when you were getting your PhD? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. I did kind of try to decide if I should go down that route. Um, but, you know, I guess I felt like um, I wanted to do something that I knew could potentially impact like um, patient care and um, yeah, I, so I came here to UNC for my graduate work and I, um, 
tried to look for plant labs that I could join. And um, I felt like one of the strengths here was there's a lot of interdisciplinary labs, but um, there weren't really that many um, plant labs where I could do like therapeutics like that. Okay. Um, also, I, I didn't really get to the part where you were saying like, like your future steps, maybe what you're considering to do later on in life, but um, I was wondering whether or not that would incorporate like patient care, whether that's something you're interested in maybe, because I think you said you work mostly from home or something. I think I read that. Is that true? Or not you were interested in like the patient care aspect, like contact with the patient. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. That's something that I really uh, considered very strongly. Like when I was finishing up my postdoc, I, um, you know, considered going back to school to get a medic counseling because, you know, that would also be an opportunity for me to directly work with patients like in this sort of um, genetic testing capacity and like kind of explain to them like what their results mean and help them understand, you know, what's going on. Um, so I, I really seriously considered that and I'm still like kicking around the idea of doing that. But, um, you know, I, I think at that point in my life, I, was either considering doing more training or um, just jumping right in and trying to like help um, impact patient care right away. So I opted for that second um, option where, uh, you know, by joining this genetic testing company, I could feel like, you know, right away, like I would be um, uh, working on patient um, uh, the, on the patient tests and like helping to write the reports and, you know, having a, a direct impact right away on their treatment and care. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause there's, um, it's really interesting, but a lot of these options require a lot of, you know, extra, um, education. So Stephanie, I was wondering if you could speak to um, the pros and cons of working for industry versus the pros and cons of working in the academic setting. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I guess one of the things I really liked about um, the academic setting was, um, you know, there's a lot more freedom to like pursue uh, like questions that interest you and you know coming up with different um, ways to like answer those questions. Um, I think that in terms of working in industry and at a genetic testing company like there's a very clear goal and like you know Invitae's goal is they want to um, provide genetic testing to like uh, as many people as um, they can and make it accessible and, and affordable and make it a routine part of like medical care. But um, since that's their goal, then their focus really is to try to like 
improve, you know, the efficiency of the genetic testing um, and the reliability of the testing and, you know, reports out quickly so that can, like, make an impact in patients' lives. So I feel like there isn't as much room for, you know, um, uh, kind of trying to uh, there's not as much freedom there where you can like ask questions about like, you know, is this the best way to do things? You know, you're kind of working with like an, a system that's already established versus I guess in, in academia, then, um, you know, we're doing more research type projects. And so, you know, some of the projects we were doing in, in like Jonathan's lab where we were asking like, should we be doing um, like a whole genome or whole exome sequencing in diagnostic contexts or in like screening contexts? Like those are things that, you know, you can do on a, you can ask those questions and do them on a small scale and try to come up with like a good answer, but like how you actually translate that into um, like patient care into like such a large number of patients, it's not really clear. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that you have more freedom, but you have to figure out like scalability and, um, you know, really kind of distill it down into like, um, you know, what are the best ways to go forward with this in terms of like patient testing and patient care. Mm -hmm. And I have a, a follow-up. Sure. <laughs> um, so with your career, where do you see your next steps? Like, where, what does the path for growth look like in, um, in Vitae? Yeah, that's an interesting question because this is such a new field, you know? So I think that, like, in terms of where um, I can go, um, there's no real set career path because, you know, this job has only come about in, you know, the past several years. So that could kind of be stressful, but also it could be an advantage because, you know, you can kind of direct like what you're interested in and, you know, use like opportunities to kind of enrich your personal growth um, so, so that you can think about the next step. But like in terms of like um, where I could directly go, I think that, you know, I'm part of the um, hereditary cancer team and I do variant interpretation. And the next step up would be to like be the lead of the team and kind of manage the other people on my team um, and kind of think about, you know, what, kinds of um, uh, tests should Invitae offer. Um, but yeah, so so that's the next like step up. But um, there are a lot of other like steps that would require me to like get further education. Like if I wanted to, you know, transition to some other role on that same team, like being a lab director, you know, I'd have to go back to mm -hmm cool to do the fellowship. So personally for me, I think I'm like, I'm really happy like at this 
age right now because I have a mix of um, a varied interpretation and then I also get to work on other like projects relate that aren't directly very interpretation, but they're related to it. So it's kind of more that like research side. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I, for me, I think I'm happy right now where I am, but always good to be trying to think about what that next step is and like what other um, personal enrichment things I could be doing. Mm -hmm. So listening to your comment about if you moved up, you might be spending more time managing people. I'm curious about how much time do you spend like in Zoom meetings talking with other people versus doing solitary work on your own um, and uh, right. just, just you well, and the computer? Oh yeah, this is a very computer intensive job. So yeah, I have to like remind myself, you know, get up occasionally take a break like go for a walk um i feel like a lot of people are in that situation working from home right now um but uh i i think that mbta does a good job of like trying to minimize the number of actual meetings that i mm-hmm. have to attend so i think i only am in maybe one hour of meetings a day or something and the rest of the time I spend doing variant interpretation and then other projects related to that so it's a lot of like solitary work mm-hmm. I guess it's it does give me the opportunity to get like into that deep state of like focus though are there any challenges working um, remotely when the base is in California and um, does that mean that when everyone else day starts at eight, you don't have to start until 11 <laughs> or are both of the team spread out throughout the United States? Uh, so our team, I think, um, if you had looked up the, at the makeup of our team several years ago, then I think everyone would have been located in San Francisco, but now our team is primarily remote and so everyone is like spread out across the United States. And I think that um, that's happening at a lot of different genetic testing companies as well. And it is good because I have the flexibility to kind of set my hours within reason, mm-hmm. um, just making sure that, you know, my team is aware of like what is on my calendar and like what hours I'll be working. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I I think that there is the ability to have that flexibility Mm -hmm. um, if you would like it. I don't want to put Elena on the spot, but Elena, do you have any further questions? Yeah, um, did you mention what kind of information you put in the testing reports? Oh yeah, that's a really good question. Um, So the testing reports um, are written by uh, genetic counselors who kind of write like a general clinical summary that states like, you know, is this a positive test or a negative test? So like, and um, what uh, variants were found 
and um, uh, you know there are often like links in the testing report to like some sort of guidelines for treatment. The part that I am um, directly involved in is the write-ups of the variants because um, I spend my time like kind of researching the variants. So um, the information that I include um, in includes things like, you know, how frequently found in population databases is this variant. So like, is it super common or is it like rare variant? Um, and then I also include information about like the clinical phenotypes that have been reported in the literature. Um, so like, has this variant been seen before in individuals? What um, sorts of phenotypes do those individuals have? And then I also include information about um, the experimental evidence. So um, where is this variant? Is it in some sort of important functional domain? Um, like what have experimental studies shown about it? Um, and then, uh, and then there's like my overall conclusion. So you know whether or not the variant could contribute could potentially contribute to um, disease or not. Um, so that general overview of um, the diagnostic testing reports, and I know that um, for the analysts who are involved in some of the other. Um, types of reports, like the ones who do like the um, proactive screening or the ones that like um, help with the reproductive screening, like those reports are completely different and have um, different information. So it's just specific to your, uh, the type of testing you're doing and then um, the area that you're in. Uh, and do those reports go uh, to the provider or do they go straight to the patient? Um, so uh, they do go to the provider and the, um, it's my understanding that the patient can also access um, the report. Um, and so the reports currently are written in a language that's a little bit more geared towards the provider, but there are always discussions about should we be writing these reports um, in language that is easily interpretable by a patient um, or should they be written more for like a clinician? Um, because really like when you um, like release the report, then um, you know, you want like someone who is very knowledgeable about this uh, field and the, um, like about uh, genetics and uh, to explain exactly what's going on to the patient. So, you know, um, I think we wouldn't be giving the report directly to the patient without them having some sort of um, contact with their provider. But that is a question that gets brought up. It's like, who should the um, report actually be like, addressed to. Mm -hmm. 
And do providers always feel confident returning genetic information? <laughs> That's like a really good question because I feel like the more and more genetic testing gets incorporated into medicine, that really like raises the question of like this, uh, like gen genetic literacy mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. You know, do the patient, I mean, do the clinicians feel comfortable, like, mm -hmm. receiving the report and reading it and then interpreting it for the patient? So, um, hopefully, you know, these uh, patients would be speaking to um, individuals who do have some knowledge in, like, genetics and... Uh, and hopefully to genetic counselors. And I know um, a lot of companies now, and, and Vitae included, they do have um, genetic counselors that you can call um, to like speak with about the report. And hopefully they could like, you know, give you some insight to um, what what's going on. But um, yeah, that, I mean, as, genetic testing becomes more and more widely like um, used in medicine, then that is a really big concern, mm -hmm. especially for like these variants of inter unknown significance. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's more clear if a variant is like known to be pathogenic or if it's known to be benign, but if the, unser if the, uns uh, if the significance is uncertain, and then like what should you do with that result and I think then you have to have some sort of knowledge or background of um, like genetics and of the specific disease area to be able to know like what should I do with this mm -hmm. Yeah, and how do y'all deal with the fact that there's always new science being published yeah. and discovered? Yeah. And somebody had genetic testing done four years ago, and a variant was uncertain significance then, and then it was recently found to be, we'll say, benign um, or pathogenic. How do you deal with that? Right, that's such a good question because, like, the information could get out of date super quickly mm -hmm. and so you don't want to be making deci like medical decisions made on like old inaccurate information and we do have um like uh projects where periodically we reinterpret variants that we have seen um previously and then also anytime like there's new papers published um, for a variant, like if that's the variant that's sitting right in front of me and I'm looking at it, then there's like some sort of flag telling me like, okay, there's a new paper that's been published. Like, so maybe we need to reinterpret the variant and update um, like its significance. But every time we update the significance, then um, like an amended report goes out to everyone who has previously had a report that has that specific variant in it. 
but then again, uh, mm-hmm. but then there is the challenge. So if the clinician gets that amended report, you know, they have to, um, first of all, like, what if they're not in contact with that patient anymore? Or, um, you know, they have to try to figure out like, okay, what does this mean now for this individual? So I think it is very challenging. Yeah, also thinking back to one of the speakers that we had last week, um, how does your work intersect with the ClinGen effort? Oh, that's a good question because, um, so actually, uh, I was part of ClinGen when I was doing my postdoc at UNC, and then also Mm -hmm. currently I'm on two ClinGen expert variant curation expert panels Mm -hmm. because, um, you know, a lot of these genetic testing companies and and Vitae as well, they want to, um, you know, they've seen so many patients undergoing like genetic testing and they want to like contribute to like the knowledge of like uh, of these variants. So, you know, not only do I like use what I learned when I was part of ClinGen, um, but I'm currently helping to like contribute to like the interpretation for some of these variants. Mm-hmm. And I think that includes like uh, the labs, like the genetic testing labs, like sharing internal observations um, as well. I remember uh I don't want to hog. Elena, do you have any questions? <laughs> no, no, not a moment. Okay. I'll um, ask. I remember there was an article that came out that showed that across different um, commercial laboratories, sometimes the assertions were different or the uh, interpretations were different. So are there any efforts to try to harmonize whether you go to Invite or, uh, I don't know, color or some of these commercial laboratories um, efforts to make sure that the interpretation is similar across labs? Um, Well, like I personally, I'm not sure of like formal efforts, but like informally, I can tell you that when there are like tricky variants that come up that, um, you know, we see that other labs have like discrepant classifications, then we do um, take the opportunity to reach out to other labs and like share information with them and like kind of ask, you know, how did you arrive at your um, conclusion? And, you know, there's kind of this reciprocal sharing of information. So I know that happens like um, informally, but hopefully like some of these ClinGen efforts will also help with those discrepancies because rules or like clarifying like rules that are currently in the ACMG um, variant interpretation guidelines and like just giving them more context. Um, And then like, piloting like some of the variant to see like um, whether they are whether they come out to be benign or pathogenic I think that those like 
efforts, like the ClinGen effort to establish like expert panels for specific genes can like help so much in helping to kind of standardize the interpretation of variants in those genes. Um, I guess the challenge is though that there's, you know, there are like expert panels, but if you think about like how many genes are on the like testing reports, you know, that's, that's a lot of expert <laughs> panels that we need to form. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and I guess one more thing that I would add is that, um, yeah, so since the expert panels have published some of those guidelines, I know that we go back and um, look at the papers and like kind of think about how to incorporate those changes into like our um, variant analysis. So for any student who might listen to this recording, uh, what would you tell them the job outlook is for um, a career as a genome analyst? <laughs> and, uh, you know, what could they expect for the future? I feel like as genetic testing becomes more and more widely available, there will be a huge need for these variant analysts because there's just, like if you think about all of the variants in the human genome, there's just so many variants of unknown significance. And um, really it requires like someone to really go through the literature and um, like critically think about like the information and kind of like synthesize it and come up with a classification. Like, I feel like uh, computationally we can only get so far, but it requires that like, um, you know, that critical thinking and also, you know, discussion um, for these really tricky ones. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there's going to be more and more and more variants of unknown significance. And um, I think that, uh, I mean, before the coronavirus happened, then um, like Invitae and a lot of other genetic testing companies too, were like rapidly hiring like variant an analysts mm -hmm. because, you know, just, the scale of testing is picking up really rapidly. And I think there was like a set a setback with coronavirus, but you know, we're starting to see like demand, like um, recover again. Mm -hmm. So I think that like in short, like there will be a high demand for variant analysts mm -hmm. and um, I mean, I think that um, in terms of like job security, uh, because of that demand then, and the ever-changing like information and, um, you know, as you mentioned, there are like all of these efforts that need to be looked into, like variant, um, like reinterpretation when there's new information or like figuring out what the dis why there are discrepancies between labs 
or just kind of like doing research that will help like aid in variant interpretation. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of like opportunities there. So I think um, the job security is pretty good. And is a PhD required usually, or are there some master's level um, opportunities? Uh, Yeah, definitely. So um, I work with a lot of other PhD level scientists, but also a lot of um, master's level um, individuals as well. So individuals that have master's in genetic counseling. And then in addition, um, like individuals who have uh, even a bachelor's level degree, um, you know, with a lot of um, previous experience in the field. I think that um, those individuals would also be good candidates as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you're interested in this position, there are a number of different ways you can get to it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Sabrina, do you have any more questions? I do not. (laughs) Elena? No, thank you, Dr. Crowley. This is very informative. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys so much. <laughs> yes, thank you. And and if you guys have any other questions um, or like uh, want me to look into anything, then just like reach out to me, and I'm happy to help. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise and experience with us today. <laughs>